0: Good morning again. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs. Right now, I'm actually going to start a new series in the book of Revelation. We're going to be spending a lot of time this summer in the book of Revelation. This is the first time I've ever preached through the book of Revelation. It's out of my comfort zone. It's been almost 10 years since we planted our church. First time we've preached through the book of Revelation And out of my comfort zone is God's zone. Most of the time when I'm uncomfortable with preaching the word, it is perfect for me and for us. I'm going to explain a little bit more about this series called Revelation, Hope for the Future for Today. I'm going to introduce it a little bit more after we do the most important thing and get to the word. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me to honor God's word. We're in Revelation, I'll read verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, Even to all that he saw, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory Y'all can be seated as we pray. Thank you, God. Would you pray with me? Lord, please add a blessing to the reading of your word, just like you stated in your word. But a blessing that's beyond our understanding or my words. Left to ourselves, God, all of us in this room tend to spin with different anxieties about today and worries about tomorrow. And some of us cope with it in different ways, whether digital or otherwise. Some of us cope with it in destructive ways, and some of us cope with our anxieties with with a veil of productivity. But all of us need to be rescued from our anxieties and from ourselves, whether we know it or not, by you, God. And so I'm asking that you would take this time to sweep us up into who you are, and who you've been, and who you always will be, so that our today may be most unwasted, and our hope for tomorrow will be more sure. I pray this in your name. Amen. As I said, we're going to spend most of our summer in the book of Revelation. We're doing a series in tandem with our sister church in Austin, Mosaic. Uh, Mosaic is the church that planted our church almost 10 years ago, Uh, the church that's also an Every Nation church like we are, a part of the the ministry Every Nation, and a church that we've been increasingly growing closer to in the last several years. Now, I'm going to work through chapter 1 of Revelation for two weeks, And then uh, on the 24th, at the end of this month, Pastor Morgan, the lead pastor for Mosaic, is going to come down and take us through chapter 2 and beyond. Uh, You don't want to miss that. So here we go with chapter 1. As I work through these eight verses, I have one big idea that helps guide my thoughts for how I want to preach through this text. So here goes. The big idea is that Our greatest hope for today and tomorrow is found in who God is, who he was, and who he always will be. Our greatest hope for today and for tomorrow is found in who God is, which is who he was and who he always will be. I'm going to develop this big idea by spending half of my time from this text in a way that gives us context for why we're doing this this summer. I think these first eight verses give introduction to the whole book that puts in perspective why we need a hope for tomorrow and today that's based in who God is. And we can see this powerfully in the peace and grace and blessing that's spoken of in these eight verses. The next half of my time, I want to actually spend developing a particular Part of who God is as revealed in these eight verses. So here we go. A little introduction about Revelation. You know, when John wrote the letter on the island of Patmos, he didn't give it a title. Giving letters or books, titles, is something that we've been doing for the last four or five hundred years. Pretty consistently in English, the title of this letter written by John has been Revelation. Singular. John's Revelation, now the first word is the word Revelation, so I'm sure where you can figure out where that, that name of the book came from, super creative. Also though, in, in, in Spanish, when I read this, this book, it's the book of the literally the apocalypse. Different languages and cultures call this book the apocalypse, and for good reason. The book tells of the end times. This book preaches about the end times. It's good for us to have a perspective of the last things that will happen. In fact, verse 1 says it plainly that John was given this revelation to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Speaking of soon in a context of the future and the last things. And then in verse 4, it talks about grace and peace being something that is distributed with this message of future things. And this is unique. There's a unique piece that comes to your today by knowing a little bit about your tomorrow and the person who holds it. I think I know it only you know, because of how I grew up, that, that phrase that's pretty common in the background. In my mind, I hear it in a country music song by Allison Krauss. And I'll try my best not to sing it, but uh, I think it was—it was—it's been. This has been spoken by civil rights activists and and different things. But that old saying, "I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds my tomorrow." I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds my tomorrow. Well, what's beautiful about what this text tells us is that we get both. We get to know what tomorrow holds a little bit and mostly wrapped up in a great and glorious blanket of knowing who holds tomorrow. We get both. We get to know from this chapter that God's got your tomorrow. But more importantly, we get to understand that God is God. He was God and he always will be God. If you feel that, And understand it, he's God. If you don't feel that or understand it, he's God. We, uh, Alberto and I, a friend of mine, we were out in North Carolina for his wedding, and we running across a, a, a young woman who who God was ministering to pretty powerfully. And she sensed she didn't know have a paradigm with what to do with prophetic things and things that we were speaking to her and. She, in one sense, is having a conflicting moment inside of her because she knows God is speaking to her through these people, but this doesn't make any sense because I don't believe in God. And so she kind of gives us this warning. Look, I, I don't believe in God. Kind of like, am, am I still okay? And um, I just told her straight away, it's okay. Whether or not you believe in God doesn't change who he is. You know, my, my children, I was so fascinated when I first became a daddy over nine years ago to see my child playing in front of me. And, and my oldest, Hadassah, was then, as, as she is now, very passionate and unaware of other people around her in the room. And she was just playing with a toy or whatever, and I'm sitting here losing my mind, crying and bawling, which is how fascinated it is to watch another human being exist. And in that moment, she wasn't aware of me watching over her, But her awareness of me didn't determine my presence and my daddiness in that moment. God is God. He holds your future. He's revealed some things to us about our future that can give us a steadfastness for today and going into tomorrow. With all the things that are different and diverse and changing and progressing and digressing in our culture, the most steadfast and timeless thing is the thing that preexisted our culture it's the revealed truth of who God is and what he is doing and what he will do. Right. Even at the end of chapter 1, John instructed, is instructed in verse 19, write down the things that are to take place after this. There's something important that God is wanting to do to show us the future and show us his, his unchanging nature that gives us security in today. He wants us to know a few things about the future that gives us an ability to live earnestly and, and live unwasted lives today, to live appropriately, appropriately today, to fu- fulfill his will today and tomorrow. Some of y'all here are people that read novels and you, you'll skim to the end before you start getting into it too much just to make sure it has a happy ending. And, and, in, and unless you know it has a happy ending, you, you might not really get deep into the novel. You don't have to admit who you are, but God knows. And if that's you, then you're in the right place because we know the ending of this book. Christ wins. He doesn't really even have to fight much. His greatest fight was on the cross when he said, it is finished. It meant that it is finished. He opened up a way for us to be forgiven of sin and have eternal life with him. In this stage of life that we live in where the church continues to grow, even as we're being purified, the victory is overwhelming. The fight is here with us, but we grow and our glorious God is doing things unto the end where he wins... It's already been scripted by him, and he tells us this. So how much more peacefully, productively, and powerfully can we live today knowing the end is already written? There's a unique peace that comes from knowing the God who is and what he does. Even knowing the hard things about tomorrow helps me to live appropriately today. If you know the... the things that John instructs in the church in this book. I mean, if you know a little bit about Revelation, I'll just say that it, there's some hard stuff in this book. There's some hard stuff written in the very next chapter to, to us, the church. There's some correction. There's some admonition. But knowing that Christ wins and those who have faith in him are forever victorious helps me to uniquely say, I don't, I don't care what happens to me today? What, what, what do I suffer? Will I get my arm chopped off? My head chopped off? I can live appropriately today. Nothing will have to shake me loose. Jesus said, in this life there will be troubles, but take heart for I have overcome the world. And he said that even as he was going to the cross, before the actual moment of the cross. In essence, it is finished already. What God has ordained and foreordained, it is more sure than what we might think or perceive. There's a unique type of peace to endure today that comes from knowing God and what he's doing tomorrow. In my life, I came to know Jesus as a high school student where at that time, the biggest thing in my life, the greatest worries were how many people would like me. And thank God this was before social media. Like, I, I just had to worry about the literal people who liked me and didn't like me, not the figurative likes, you know, the digital likes. I was obsessed with it. It was the biggest thing in my life was how I was perceived to others. And my, the future of my life and the way I manipulated people and stuff was determined by my, my future outlook, the best that I could see. And I didn't see what God was doing God didn't depend on me seeing to do something much greater than I could do for myself. He, came, he caused me to come to know Him, came into my life, started wrecking shop on all the defiled things that I had lifted up in my life, and changing my future as I knew it. When I started reading books like this, and understanding God's will for, for the world and thus His will for my life, He started putting things in perspective about how I live my life today and the things that I can endure today and the things that I'm just not going to freak out about anymore. Amen? Now, I said that's still a battle for me because I, like you, freak out about things that I just shouldn't freak out about. But when I understand more who God is and what He's doing, it swallows those other things up. Amen? Now, in addition to understanding this, God's given the gift of of people encouraging me with what God knows about me. 1 Corinthians 14, it's it's known as the gift of prophecy. What we know from Revelation in this chapter, and especially the end of the chapter, is prophecy isn't only telling of future things, but it's telling of things as they are, beyond what we see. That's why in the, in the chapters two and three, when it speaks to the churches, behold, you, you, you think this way, but there's a deeper thing to what's happening here. There's, there's a spirit of Jezebel to one of the churches. There's a, there's a this happening. that God sees deeper into your life than you see today. He sees your present more clearly than you see it. And he sees your future. And even though you might not see things and we might be up and down and changing and back and forth, he's always the same. And he is bringing us to a sure end where he is exalted. And all the other things that might be shaken from our life, we can say amen to, whether we understand them or not, because we can have an assurance of who God is and what he's doing. Now, in my life, when God has spoken to me through other people and built me up, sometimes, uh, most of the time, it's actually been the opposite of knowing that, that there's hard things ahead and being able to uh, to, to be aware of you know, the happy moments. It's been the opposite, where, where God will, will show me, hey, he's using these difficult things you're going through because he's doing these things in your life, and he's just giving me perspective of my life through other people encouraging me, and it helps me to endure the hard things. God wants us to know who he is and what he's doing in the future, whether it's, whether it's things that are, are good or things that are difficult, So he'll know, so we'll know more of his perspective of what he's doing in our life. There's a blessing and a peace. Peace and grace to you, it says, through reading these words. Then it also says blessing. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of these prophecies. Thank you, Lord. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, to be clear, it's not simply a blessing in hearing, but hearing and keeping. Verse 3, hearing without obeying doesn't bring blessing. Or as James says, faith without works is dead. It's not even really faith. It's, in essence, it's not truly hearing in this context. What's the point of knowing about the things in the future that Revelation talks about if I don't plan on doing anything about it? If I don't plan on staking my life as I know it on it? It'd be like that guy who, uh, let's say, you you know a guy 10 years ago who says, man, if you buy stock in Amazon, it's going to explode like 50 50 times or something like that. Let's say he knew that 10 years ago and and you look back on that and, and find out, man, that guy knew then. But then you find out, That guy who was was so loud about knowing about Amazon never bought a share. That would be ridiculous. What's the point of knowing something like this if you don't buy a share? We need to buy shares in the life of Christ. And and at the cost of our entire life is what Jesus has ordained for us. And there's an infinitely better return than Amazon. It's not enough, for instance, just to know that Jesus is Lord. I, I think I knew that Jesus was Lord growing up, like, oh, he's, he's God, and, but I didn't have personal faith that he's my Lord. I didn't have the, the faith that hears and keeps, as verse 3 says, and when I did, there was true blessing. Amen? Blessing that, that could be like, it doesn't matter what you're going to take me through in the future, Jesus. I know that you win, you've overcome the world, and I'm yours, so it's working out for me. So whatever I'm going through today, this can work out. Blessed, it says. There's blessing through hearing the word of God and through keeping it. And God is the one who can draw near to us to give us ears to hear, and when we have faith in Him, to give us the ability to obey His word. Without which, we're just a whole bunch of people that are trying, and trying is lying. Blessed. Now, contextually too, blessed is a strange word used here because when I look through the rest of Revelation here, there's a lot of hard things, as I've said. So the fact that He would use blessing here to me seems a bit strange because most of what follows especially for the church is correction uh, it's admonition it's warnings about future things so it's strange that it says blessed are those who hear these things but let me illustrate this my child my three-year-old yesterday we warned her don't jump in the pool without there's no adults over there at the pool don't go near the pool and she jumped in the pool and we took her out and corrected her and disciplined her and warned her what were we doing we were blessing her we were blessing her did she understand it no it doesn't matter if she understands that we were blessing her because we were give you another illustration. This one's a little harder on me, but uh, over the last four or five years in our board meetings, I would bring ideas to our board of oversight in our church that has uh, true governance over this church. In our annual meetings, often I'll be like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and here's how we're going to use our money for this. And oftentimes, members of the board, especially uh, Morgan Stevens, who's a part of our, our Mosaic Church, our leader there, he's, he has come up against my will on two or three different occasions. And why? To bless us. And he'd be like, well, you know, I don't think this is wise. We don't need to do this. And every time he's been right, and I'll go back like six months later and be like, Morgan, man, what if, what if you wouldn't have stood up to me in that board meeting, man? We'd be hurting right now. I'd have made an even dumber decision or something like that. What was Morgan doing in those, those board meetings? He was blessing me. He was blessing us. How about as a pastor? As a pastor and as a friend, and as someone who's made my own stupid decisions, I'll meet with the con- congregants, friends, and, and I'll hear things like, okay, here's what I'm going to do with my life, or, or this relationship, or, or this thing, and, and this is my plan. And and my first thought is, this is so stupid. But how do I bless my brother or my sister right now? This is clearly folly. This is not going to end well. I've been here before. What am I doing when I stand against you? I'm standing with you. I'm blessing. Now, it doesn't mean I'm always right. Sometimes I'm wrong. But you know what? Sometimes I stand with Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus, when he stands against us, is always right. He always wants to bless us and not curse us, to prosper us and not harm us. And sometimes his blessing is very severe. So when he tells us, here's what's in the future, know that some of these things are hard things, some of these things are are beautiful, victorious things, But all of these things are glorious things because I am and I was and I always will be who I am and was and always will be. And you are mine. And the other thing that doesn't change is my regard toward you. Our greatest hope for today and tomorrow is found in who God is and who he was and who he always will be. Over the next two weeks, I want to draw out Particular attributes of who God is that we see in chapter 1 of Revelation. Next week I'll have three attributes that I see from the end of chapter 1. Ways that we can understand who God is and therefore know whatever I'm going through or whatever I perceive happening in the world around me, I have a greater understanding of who God always will be. Now, the first attribute that I see from our, our text, one major attribute that I just want to spend our last few moments on, is that God is and was and always will be unchanging. Unchanging. I'm going to get to other attributes next week, but let's dig deeper into verse 4 and 5. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace From he who is, and who was, and who is to come. God is, has always been, and always will be unchanging. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of immutability. That God is immutable. He is unchanging. You can't change him. We can... Perceive Jesus to be a certain way, but that doesn't change who Jesus is. He's unchanging. When your circumstances change, when you're laid off of your job, when your hormones change, when you're young or when you're old, when your boyfriend calls a quits or your spouse fails, when your student loan debt seems like this big mountain, or your retirement... Doesn't. When your emotional life or your physical health is an outright roller coaster. When your nation runs after one God and then another God. And then we're progressing, but now we're digressing, but we're progressing. You can know that God doesn't progress because he's never needed to. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, today. And forever, God never changes. He doesn't need to. And for those who have faith in Jesus, who, who believe, I have access to who God is, and I know more than I define myself, and I can define my political or sexual or any other sort of identity, who I am is bound and liberated in whose I am. Because if he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then understanding who he is and therefore who I am gives me a greater fortitude to suffer the things that I would suffer today and to be more victorious going into tomorrow. Our greatest hope for today and tomorrow is found in who God is, who he was, and who he always will be. The other thing about God that is unchanging is his regard for those who have faith in him. He's never changing in his love for you, his regard for you. When you fail, he doesn't see you as a failure. He sees you as a child that's covered by his blood. When you succeed, he doesn't doesn't go, go after you like, oh man, now I love him now. He says, that's my child who's covered by my blood. His regard for you, is unchanging. Verse 8, he gets repetitive. Jesus, I believe, is speaking this and saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which means the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You may feel high on life or down in the dumps, but Jesus is always on his throne. Regardless of what you feel. And I'm, and I'm sure this is understanding. This is not like some sort of prophetic promise. This, you'll feel both probably in the next week. High on life or down in the dumps. And Jesus never changes. That is our greatest hope and our greatest peace. God is unchanging. In fact, verse, Revelation 13 you don't have to turn there, but it says something strange about Jesus' death that underlines the unchanging nature of, of God. Revelation 13:8 says that Jesus will rescue those whose names are written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus will rescue in the last days, in the future, people from the lies of the enemy. Lies that seep into the church, lies that seep into families, lies that sleep, seep into nations. All those other things will crumble, but the people who have faith in Jesus will not crumble because our names are written in a book that can never be burned. Whose book? The book of the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Now, this is strange. Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And always will be the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In fact, forever and ever we will cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He always was. Even before he was sinned against, Jesus is the Lamb. This is a mysterious truth. He doesn't change. Even before he was sinned against, he's always been the Lamb slain. You need to know that that Jesus' plan to go to the cross was not some, some, you know, like, oh, let me, oops, I gotta go, like, fix this thing because these people that I created are sinning now. So I guess I got a plan B. Here we go. No, that's not what happened. It was always his plan to reveal the glory of his mercy at the quintessential moment on the cross. There is no God like this who suffers on behalf of his children turned enemies. God forgiving us isn't just kind of improving our decent life and kind of come alongside us because we're doing pretty good, and so he's going to help us a little more. No, we sin against him. We are hopeless without him, and we are his enemies, and he comes to make us sons and daughters. This is mysterious. It's who he is, and it's who he always has been. He is unchanging. Verse 7 Every, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This wail, this word wail here, is not like a happy type of crying. Uh, it's, it is a regretful, mournful wailing that's used in the word and even in the context Christ is who he always has been. And there will be a moment where people will see, okay, in contrast with who he is, all these other things that I've worried about, I'm mourning myself and why I would do that. Now, some who will wail, will wail for their misunderstanding, for rejecting the Savior and will be rejected forever. And this, I fear, uh, is, is a, a moment of finality for some. Others will wail in a way that functions more like a purging, like, I am yours, and yet there remain all these other worries that I haven't vanquished yet. And I wail in seeing more and more of who He is. My prayer is that more of that wailing and that groaning with the Spirit can happen before the last day for us, church. But there will be a moment where the the wailing functions like as a purging, that anything that can't eternally rejoice with purity in who Jesus is and who He always has been and will be has to get out. so that we can say to him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood glory 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 our sins his blood what an exchange not his sins not our blood he has freed us from our sins with his blood now it's always been His plan for us to have His love on us to a degree where it costs Him everything so that we could just give up all that we are and, and mourn it as, count it as loss for the sake of knowing Him and being found in Him, having no spot nor wrinkle or any such thing that we could have faith And so what are my plans for my career or my family or my summer vacation? It matters very little compared to this assurance that rocks my life of who Jesus is. And I can rejoice in this one who loved me and freed me to the degree that I can purge myself. Now Jesus has given us this promise in the last day, but he's also given us a practice for us to to experience this today. It's hope for the future for today. He's given us a practice. He says, as often as you break the bread, remember me. We can be broken before him and we can earnestly get rid of all the other things through confession of our sin to receive by faith the sustenance of who he is at the table of God. Would you stand your feet with me?